family feuds. History is littered with examples. From European kings to Oriental emperors, families have squared off against families. And they've fought each other for generations. If you've ever read Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet, you know of the feud between the Capulets and the Montagues. American folklore has made famous the feud between the Hatfields and the McCoys. Well, in modern times, families even square off every night on television with the family feud. Family feuds, they're famous. And the book of Obadiah is all about a long-running family feud. You remember the feud erupted with the two brothers, Jacob and Esau. Jacob stole his brother's birthright, then deceived their father. Esau became bitter. But the feud didn't end with the two brothers. It continued with their descendants. The Edomites, or the offspring of Esau, and the children of Jacob, or the Israelites, fought and feuded for centuries. But this is one family feud that ends, or the final feud is decided by a third party. God will conclude this feud. Thus he sends Obadiah to the Edomites with a short, succinct message. Verse 1 reads, The vision of Obadiah, thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. The whole book is just a single chapter. Verses 1 through 16 describe the destruction of Edom, while verses 17 through 21 depict the deliverance of Israel. Verses 2 and 3 uncover Esau or Edom's problem. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be greatly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. Pride had blinded Edom to the truth, and God judged her for her pride. Understand, the Philistines worshipped Dagon, the fish god. The Canaanites bowed to Baal. The Ammonites served Molech. They all worshipped idols, false gods. But the Edomites worshipped no god. They were atheists. Edomites put their trust in themselves, like the guy who called dollar prayer to check his messages. They were stuck on themselves. Edom had grown cocky, had become arrogant. Edom was fiercely independent. It also reminds me of the conversation heard one night in the insane asylum. One of the patients shouted out, I am Napoleon Bonaparte. The attendant who was on duty that night, he asked, how do you know you're Napoleon? He said, God told me. And that's when they both heard a voice down the hall shout back, I did not. (laughs) Hey, anyone who lives like they are their own God is a bit insane. They're a little bit crazy. Psalm 14 verse 1 says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. We live in a world of amazing order and symmetry. Look at the factors that contribute to life on earth. The distance between the earth and sun. The speed of the earth's rotation. The percentage of oxygen in the atmosphere. The pressure of the air around us. 
the exchange of oxygen and CO2 in the atmosphere. These and many other phenomena are carefully and precisely designed to support life here on the earth. The third rock is 93 million miles from the sun. 10% closer and we would be burned to a crisp. 10% further away and we'd turn into an ice cube. Air pressure at sea level is 14.7 pounds per square inch. If it were 25 pounds, you'd be crushed. If it were 5 pounds, your body would explode. Everywhere you look, you can see evidence for design and order within the universe. And design always requires a designer. Order always requires an intelligent organizer. It's ludicrous to chalk up such phenomena, such order and symmetry, to just chance occurrences and random events. NASA scientist Dr. John O'Keefe writes, We are by astronomical standards a pampered group of creatures. Our Darwinian claim to have done it all ourselves is as ridiculous and as charming as a baby's brave efforts to stand on his own feet and refuse his mother's hand. If the universe had not been made with the most exacting precision, we could never have come into existence. It is my view that these circumstances indicate the universe was created for man to live in. Well, the Bible told us that a long time ago. But like the Edomites, modern Americans, too, are guilty of idolizing their own ingenuity, their own technology. The Edomites did this themselves. They carved out cities among the rocks and cliffs around the Dead Sea. They believed that they could defend themselves. They believed that they didn't need God. Just like their father Esau, they sold the blessing of God for a bowl of chili, in essence. The Edomites also failed to recognize their need for God's power and his presence in their life. And in the days of Obadiah, they had put their trust in their fortresses and in their fortifications. God tells them in verses 3 and 4, The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who dwell in the clefts of the rock, whose habitation is high. You who say in your heart, Who will bring me down to the ground? Though you ascend as high as the eagle, and though you set your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down. Edom thought he was high and mighty. God tells him, you're going down. Edom sees himself as a soaring eagle. God sees him as a dying duck. The territory of Edom was a swath of land southeast of the Dead Sea. It was an area about 30 miles wide by 100 miles long. And the Edomites made their homes in the cliffs and caves of the Rocky Highlands. Their most famous city was the city of Petra. If you've seen the movie Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, you've seen the rock facade of the city of Petra. In the movie, Petra was used as the cave that supposedly contained the Holy Grail. To invade the city of Petra, you had to climb down a gorge about a mile deep. The entrance to the city was so narrow that the soldiers had to align themselves single file in order to enter the city, and thus it made the city easy to defend. You could pick off those invaders one at a time. Petra was considered impregnable to attack. Edom's boast was all based around these natural fortifications. 
All around these natural advantages, Edom thought they would never fall. It reminds me of Muhammad Ali back in his boxing heyday. He too was quite boastful. Once he boarded an airplane and was asked by the flight attendant to buckle his seatbelt. And that's when Ali replied, Superman don't need no seatbelt. Well, the flight attendant looked at him real closely and he, she said, Superman don't need no airplane. And a humbler Muhammad Ali buckled his seatbelt. Edom thought he was Superman. God will show him that he's super chicken. Edom will be cut off, we're told in the next few verses. Edom will have his treasures ripped off. The Edomites will be betrayed by their allies. The indictment against Edom gets more specific in verses 12 and 14. But you should have get you should not have gazed on the day of your brother in the day of his captivity nor should you have rejoiced over the children of Judah in the day of their destruction nor should you have spoken proudly in the day of distress you see Edom had taken delight and had taken advantage of Israel's hardships it was said of Edom's attitude toward the Jews The only thing about Edom that bordered on religious fervor was their concentrated, persistent, bitter hatred against Israel. When Israel came out of Egypt, remember, the Edomites refused to allow Moses to pass through their territory on the way to the promised land. Saul fought against Edom. David conquered them for a time. Edom was a part of the coalition that attacked Israel during the days of King Jehoshaphat. The conflict with Edom was constant and always right under the surface. It always was a part of Israel's national life. Wars were fought in the reigns of Jehoram, Amaziah, Ahaz, and Zedekiah. This was a long-running family feud. Obadiah doesn't give us the exact historical setting for verses 12 through 14, but it was after another nation had invaded Jerusalem. There are three possibilities. You might jot them down. It could have happened during the days of Jehoram. Judah was invaded at that time by the Arabs and the Philistines. It could have happened during the reign of Ahaz when they were invaded again by the Philistines. Or it could have been in the days of Zedekiah when they were invaded by the Babylonians. If I had to pick, I would pick the latter in the days of Zedekiah and the Babylonian invasion of 586 B.C. There is a psalm, Psalm 137, verse 7, that speaks of the Babylonian invasion of Jerusalem. There the psalmist writes, Remember, O Lord, against the sons of Edom, the day of Jerusalem, who said, Raz it, raz it to its very foundation. You see, Edom had served as Babylon's cheerleaders. They had jumped on the bandwagon. Israel was down, and it was their goal to keep them down and to put them down permanently. They wanted to pour it on their hated enemy. There's also a verse in the Apocrypha, 1 Esdras 4, verses 45. It's not inspired scripture, obviously, but it is some interesting history. There Zerubbabel tells the king of Persia, You also vowed to build the temple which the Edomites burned when Judea was laid waste by the Chaldeans. And there, if we can take it 
as accurate, Zerubbabel says that Edom helped the Babylonians in the destruction of the temple. That fits with Obadiah's verses here in verses 12 through 14. I once had a supervisor at the company where I worked at DuPont named Ralph. Ralph was an old guy, but he was full of wisdom. We worked together in a distribution center, and I'll never forget one Friday evening we were locking up, we were heading home for the weekend, when I found a hobo, a homeless man, who'd come in on the railroad cars And he was lying in a drunken stupor on the dock of the warehouse. According to company policy, Ralph was supposed to run him off the property. But instead, we made him a bed out of packing material. And we laid some crackers and a soft drink by his head. So when he woke up, he'd have something to eat. And I'll never forget what Ralph told me. He knew he was breaking the rules. I did too. But Ralph said, Sandy... Never kick a man when he's down. You never know when you might be that man. Edom should have had mercy on his fallen brother. Instead, he poured salt in the wound. He kicked Israel when he was down. In verses 12 through 14, God says to Edom, You should not have done this. And here's why, verse 15. For the day of the Lord upon all the nations is near... As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your reprisal shall return upon your own head. Hey, what goes around, comes around. Edom will also be judged. History tells us that the Babylonians eventually turned on the Edomites. Even after the Babylonians, they were conquered by Alexander the Great. They were eventually scattered by the Maccabeans. And by the 3rd century A.D., They were spoken of as a people who no longer existed. From the time they were, from the time they kicked a downtrodden Israel onward, they became a nation small and despised, just as Obadiah had predicted back in verse two. But in contrast, God will bless Israel. God will deliver his people. Verse 17 tells us, On Mount Zion there shall be deliverance, and there shall be holiness. The house of Jacob shall possess their possessions. Verse 6 tells us that Edom had her treasures all ripped off, but Judah's treasures will be rediscovered. For me, verse 17 is one of those provocative verses in the Scripture. It's really something to chew on. What does God mean by possessing your possessions? If they're your possessions, then why do you need to possess them? Don't you already possess them? Not necessarily. Once the wealthy tycoon and newspaper magnate William Randolph Hearst sent his assistance on a worldwide search for a rare, beautiful painting that he had seen in a magazine. Hearst was an avid art collector. After weeks of combing galleries all around the world, his assistants returned. And they reported the results of their failed search. But Hearst wouldn't take no for an answer. He sent them out again. Finally, the painting was located in one of Hearst's own warehouses. He had owned the painting all along. But he had failed to possess his possession. Sadly, there are Christians in the same situation tonight. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3 informs us that we've been blessed 
with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We own infinite riches and resources, spiritual treasures like peace and power and love and joy and patience and self-control and boundless wisdom. And yet how many of us have taken possession of our possessions? We need faith. Faith is the grip. Faith is the tentacle that reaches out and grabs hold of the spiritual realm and enables us to pull out our possessions. Faith makes the things of the Spirit tangible and touchable and personal and applicable and powerful and prevalent. Have faith. Reach out tonight. Whatever you need, embrace it. It's yours already. Take possession of your possessions and apply those things that the blood of Jesus has bought for you. The rest of the chapter describes how Judah will burn brightly as Edom dies out. Verse 21 tells us that judges will come to execute a final judgment on Edom. And the last line of Obadiah says, And the kingdom shall be the Lord's. In the end, who wins this family feud? We might assume that Israel did, and in a sense, we would be right. But Obadiah clarifies us at this point. It was really not Israel that won. It was God who won. And since Israel was on God's side, he reaped the benefits. And the kingdom shall be the Lord's, Obadiah says. You see, neither you or I are going to win the battle. The victory belongs to the Lord. And the question for us tonight is not, is God on our side? The question is, are we on God's side? That was also the question that the prophet Jonah should have asked. The book of Jonah begins in verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish, so he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. The name Jonah means hawk. I'm sorry, the name Jonah means dove. It means dove, but by his nature, Jonah was more a hawk. Jonah was an extreme nationalist, very pro-Israeli. He believed strongly and rightly that the Hebrews were God's chosen people. They were destined to rule the world. Jonah's first assignment had been a joy. 2 Kings chapter 14 verse 25 says of King Jeroboam, He restored the territory of Israel from the entrance of Hamath to the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord God of Israel, which he had spoken through his servant Jonah. Notice that Jonah had been the one who predicted victory for Israel and the expansion of her borders. Hey, judgment on the Gentiles, blessings on the Jews. This was a prophecy that fit with Jonah's prejudice. But now, 
God's word comes to him a second time. And this time he has a little different request. Jonah is told to go beyond the borders of Israel and call Nineveh a Gentile city to repent. The great city of Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. And the Assyrians represented everything that Jonah hated. They were a savage, barbarous people, bent on world conquest, total domination. In addition, they were Gentiles. Assyria was the nation Israel's main threat and most formidable foe at the time. And to ask Jonah to preach salvation to the Assyrians, oh boy. That was like asking a Holocaust victim to preach love to a Nazi war criminal. Or an African American to share Christ with a white supremacist. Or a bulldog booster to pray for a yellow jacket victory. It was big. You see, Jonah wanted to see these Assyrians slaughtered, not saved. He'd been praying for their destruction, not their deliverance. We need to understand, Jonah was a bigot. Yes, the nation Israel was God's chosen people, but that didn't mean there wasn't room in God's heart for other people as well. Jonah, we could call the prejudiced prophet. Reminds me of the Chinaman and the Jew who were eating lunch at the same deli. And without any provocation at all, the Jew walks over and he punches the Chinaman right in the mouth. The Chinese fellow, he asked, why in the world did you do that? What was that for? And the Jewish man says, for Pearl Harbor. The China man couldn't believe it. We had nothing to do with Pearl Harbor. That was the Japanese. The Jewish man kind of shrugs and he says, hey, what does it matter? Chinese, Japanese, Taiwanese, they're all the same to me. And he just sat down. <laughs> well, moments later, the... Chinaman walks over and he cold cocks the Jew. After the Jewish man picks himself off the ground, he says, what in the world was that for? The Chinaman answers, the Titanic. And the Jewish man sort of scratches his head and says, I don't get it. What did the Jews have to do with the sinking of the Titanic? And the Chinese man tells him, hey, buddy, Goldberg, Feinberg, Iceberg, they're all the same to me. You know, all prejudice is just as irrational as that exchange in the deli. Bigotry is always an affront to God. It narrows and restricts and puts limits on His grace. It shrinks the heart of God to one group, my group. What an awful thing. I once had a lady tell me, and rightly so, prejudice is not a skin problem, it's a sin problem. And that's so true. Prejudice is the pinnacle of pride. Just because you're not like me, you must be inferior. What blasphemy. Prejudice is a sin against God's love and against God's creativity. Jonah was called to go east toward Nineveh. Instead, he boards a boat for Tarshish, the equivalent of a slow boat to China, I might add. Tarshish was the westernmost tip of the Mediterranean, perhaps even Spain, God told Jonah to go to Assyria, but he headed as far as he could go in the other direction. And I'm sure he purchased a one-way ticket. 
But Jonah never made his destination. Verse 4 tells us that God stirred up a violent storm at sea that threatened to break apart the ship. Cargo was thrown overboard to lighten the load, but to no avail. The captain and the crew were panicked. All they could do was pray. And that's probably when someone reminded the captain that there was a prophet on board. He found Jonah asleep in the hull of the ship, trying to hide from God. Meanwhile, the crew figured the storm was the result of some passenger's sin. God must have known that someone was carrying some extra baggage. And so according to verse 10, Jonah, before this, uh, the storm, Jonah had mentioned, according to verse 10, to a few people on board that he was on the run for God. And so they cast lots. And it turned up that Jonah was the culprit. And in verse 8, they begin to grill him with question. It's a tribunal at sea is what it was. And they finally asked the prophet himself what needs to happen to stop the storm. And Jonah answers them in verse 12. Pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you. For I know that this great tempest is because of me. Notice he's still so stuck in his prejudice that he never thinks to repent and return to Nineveh. Jonah is in a state of denial. Though the sailors don't want to toss Jonah into the sea, God leaves them no choice. Because every time they try to row toward the shore, the storm becomes more intense. And so finally, the sailors pray a prayer and throw Jonah overboard. And the moment his body hits the water, verse 15 tells us the sea ceased from its raging. The crew members are so impressed, they worship God. It's obvious that Jonah's God is the creator and the controller of the sea and the winds and the storm. Chapter 1 starts with a great city. It includes a great wind and it ends with a great fish. Notice verse 17. Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now this is where the story of Jonah gets a little fishy. How could a man be swallowed by a fish and survive three days and three nights in the fish's belly? Let me give you four possibilities to ponder. First, we usually think of Jonah and the whale. But the Bible doesn't say that he was swallowed by a whale. Verse 17 says, the Lord had prepared a great fish. One of the Jewish rabbis taught that this fish that swallowed Jonah was actually a special fish prepared by God from creation for the very purpose of transporting Jonah. This fish could have been a specially custom-built fish just for Jonah, a divine submarine, you might call it. Another possibility, it's not inconceivable to think that a man could actually be swallowed by a great fish or a whale and survive. A sperm whale has a mouth 20 feet long, 15 feet high, 9 feet wide, larger than most bedrooms. Whalers have found man-sized squid in the bellies of whales. It would be hot, certainly, between 104 and 108 degrees Fahrenheit. 
The gastric juices would bleach out a man's skin, but there would be some oxygen to breathe. It's not impossible. Third, such a scenario is not without precedent. In 1891, a whaler named James Bartley was lost at sea off the coast of the Falkland Islands. The accident occurred as his fellow sailors were trying to harpoon a whale. A few hours after the incident, they were harvesting the blubber from the whale when they noticed some activity going on in the stomach. When they cut open the whale's belly, they found James Bartley. His skin was permanently bleached and discolored, but Bartley was alive and relatively unharmed. The fourth possibility is found in chapter 2, verse 2. Notice Jonah prays to the Lord from the belly of the fish, but look at what he says in this last line of verse 2. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. Sheol was the Old Testament name for Hades, or the abode of the dead. It could be that he is simply speaking metaphorically. Hey, this fish was hell on earth. It was Sheol, so to speak. But his words could be literal. Perhaps Jonah repented from Hades. Perhaps he actually died in the belly of that fish. His soul went to Hades. There he repented and God gave him a second chance. Remember in Matthew chapter 12, verse 40, Jesus said, As Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus, of course, literally died, went to Hades where he preached to the captives, then rose from the dead on the third day. And he compares his journey into the afterlife to Jonah's experience. Perhaps Jonah actually died in the belly of the fish and was resurrected from the dead when the whales spit him up on the shore. That's a fourth possibility. Chapter 2, though, records Jonah's prayer of repentance. Apparently, total darkness and stifling heat and boiling gastric juices and slimy tissue and seaweed body wraps all have a way of getting your attention. Combine all that, and it creates an excellent opportunity to think through your prejudices and the error of your ways and to plot a new course. And that's what Jonah does. It reminds me of the young man who approached the elder of the village and said that he wanted to know God. The older man took him down to the river and held his head under the water for a long, long time. The young man started to fight and gasp for air. And finally, the old man let him up. And when he did, he said, Son, when you become as desperate for God as you were for air, then you will find him. And it was in a state of desperation that Jonah breaks through his own prejudices and comes to a place of repentance. Jonah prays to the Lord, and the Lord hears his voice. Read Jonah's prayer with me in verses 6 through 9. You have brought me up. You have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer went up to you into your holy temple. Those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy. But I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay what I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. And we're told in verse 10, So the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. 
Jonah was given a new lease on life. He was given a second crack at ministry. And now, rather than running from God, Jonah is running with God. The story of Jonah reminds me of Gary Tyndall. He was on trial for robbery in a California courtroom, the courtroom of Judge Rodriguez. During a recess, Tyndall asked if he could go to the restroom. And while the guards waited outside, Tyndall shimmied up the plumbing and scurried down the crawl space trying to escape. He did make it about 30 feet until the panels under him collapsed and he fell through the ceiling right back in Judge Rodriguez's courtroom right before his bench. Guys, you can't run from God. Jonah here comes full circle too. He ends up right back where he started. You can't escape the calling and will of God. If you're on the run from God's will tonight, trust me, He has a fish prepared for you. Let me ask you, what's your Nineveh? What is the one thing you've said that you just won't do? What is the one place you've said, I just won't go? The one mission you've said, I will not accept. Here's my question. Is your prejudice more important than God's will? I hope not. Chapter 3 tells us again that God spoke to Jonah. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach to it the message that I tell you. This time, Jonah obeys. I love the story of Queen Elizabeth and the Earl of Oxford. Elizabeth ruled England from 1558 to 1603. She was a skillful ruler who brought peace to the British Isles during her reign. Once the earl was bowing low before his beloved queen when accidentally, audibly, he broke wind. And he emitted a terrible, awful odor. He was so embarrassed that he spent the next two years overseas to avoid any interview with his beloved queen. Finally, though, the Earl of Oxford had to come home. He returned to London, and there he paid his respects to the queen, and her first words to the earl were, My lord, I have forgot the fart. It's comforting to know that when we stink up the place, the Lord will forgive our mistakes. The Lord will forget the stinker. Isn't that good to know? Isn't that a blessing to understand? And if ever there was a stinker, trust me, it was Jonah. He was a bigot. He filled the air with stubbornness and prejudice. His rebellion reeked. Yet God forgave Jonah and gave him a second chance. God will even forgive stinkers like me and you. How about that? This time, Jonah made the three-day journey to Nineveh. And he stood on the street corner and he cried out, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. It sounds simple. But remember chapter 1 called Nineveh a great city. It was a seat of ruthless and brutal Assyrian power. The city probably had a population of over a million people. Imagine a Jew on the street corners of Tehran, Iran, 
heralding the truth that Muhammad is a false prophet and Jesus is the only answer. What a picture. And yet that was probably the equivalent of what the prophet Jonah was called to do. There is, though, one point I want to make about Jonah's message. He says, yet 40 days. And that must have caused the Assyrians to think, if the God of Israel is bent on our destruction, why would he wait 40 days? Jonah didn't say it, but they must have assumed that God was willing to forgive them. If he was giving them this time, he must be allotting them an opportunity to repent and turn from their sin and receive his mercy and grace. And their perception paid off. For verse 5 tells us that the Ninevites, from the king to the commoner, all believed God and repented of their sin. In fact, they called a nationwide fast. They humbled themselves in sackcloth and ashes, and they cried to God for mercy. And verse 10 of chapter 3 tells us the result. Then God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, and God relented from the disaster he had said he would bring upon them. And he did not do it. God shows mercy on the Ninevites. Judgment eventually comes upon Assyria at the hands of Babylon 150 years later. But after the generation who repented at the preaching of Jonah, after they die, after their influence wanes away, but at the time they repented, God showed mercy on these Ninevites. In fact, This may have been the single greatest spiritual awakening of all time. Think about it for a moment. We think back of the day of Pentecost as being a powerful spiritual moment. But on that day, only 3,000 souls were saved. Here in Nineveh, a whole city repented. More than a million people turned to God. An amazing revival. And what's even more amazing is that God did it through a reluctant, prejudiced prophet named Jonah. It again proves that God uses us more in spite of us than because of us. You know, I believe that there are four factors that probably contributed to Jonah's phenomenal success. Factor number one, the time was right. The Assyrian king at the time was a man named Assyrian III. His reign was colored by several natural disasters that the people had interpreted as signs or omens. There was an eclipse. There was an earthquake. There had been a famine and several military defeats just prior to Jonah's appearance that had primed the pump of the people's heart for the message to repent and turn to the one true God. The time was right. Factor number two, the prophet was white. Imagine Jonah's appearance when he entered the gates of Nineveh. His skin was shriveled up like a prune and bleached white. He looked like an elderly Jewish albino. And he smelled, man. He reeked. Something smelled fishy about Jonah from the start. He definitely could attract a crowd. People would flock to see the puked-up prophet. There's a cartoon I clipped out of a magazine that I thought was kind of funny. Mrs. Jonah meets her husband at the door. He's disheveled. He's dripping wet. He's just been thrown up by the 
fish. And she's standing there with her hands on her hip, kind of barking at him and saying, for crying out loud, Jonah, three days late, covered with slime and smelling like a fish, and what story do I have to swallow this time? The time was right, the prophet was white, and the third factor, they heard of his flight. In Luke chapter 11, verse 30, Jesus says that Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites. Apparently, his story became well known among the people. They knew of Jonah's prejudice, that he didn't want to come to Nineveh. But God loved them enough to employ unusual means to overcome the prophet's reluctance. God had loved them a lot. It's also interesting to note that the Assyrians worshipped a fish god named Oannes. And that a fish threw Jonah up on the shore may have caused the Assyrians to think of Jonah as a messenger from Oannes. If so, it would have provided him an immediate platform from which he could preach the truth about the true God, the God of Israel, the God named Jehovah. And factor number four. The time was right, the prophet was white, they heard of his flight, and the Spirit of God showed his might. For guys, this is the case in every spiritual awakening. God may use dramatic, exciting testimony. He may use desperate circumstances. He may use a fired up or a puked out prophet. But ultimately, every revival, every awakening is a sovereign work of God's Holy Spirit. It's interesting, in chapter 2, verse 9, Jonah said of his own conversion, salvation is of the Lord. No man comes to God. No man turns from his sin and embraces the Savior unless the Spirit of God draws him. That was true of Jonah. That is true of you and me. And that is true of anyone who turns from sin and turns to God. Every time a man is saved for eternity, it takes the power of the Holy Spirit to work that miracle. Chapter 4 proves just what a stinker Jonah really is. Verse 1 reveals an unbelievable fact. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he became angry. You preach, a whole city repents, and it upsets you? You become angry? Say what? Check out Jonah's complaint in verses 2 and 3. He prayed to the Lord and said, Ah, Lord! Was not this what I said when I still, when I was still in my country? Therefore I fled previously to Tarshish, for I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. In other words, Jonah is saying, I knew this would happen. I told you so. The Assyrians deserved to fry in hell. I wanted them to fry in hell, but God is so gracious and so merciful and so kind. Give him half a chance and he'll mess everything up and he'll forgive these rotten sinners. I knew he'd do it. That's why I wanted to go to Tarshish. Can you believe his attitude? I'm telling you, Jonah was one stinker. He was one sick puppy. He was an evangelist with an attitude. Rather than rejoicing, Jonah becomes resentful. He still hasn't given up his prejudices. In fact, Jonah is so bummed, he wants to die. He says in verse 3, 
Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. How can anyone be that biased and that bigoted? And Jonah is about to learn an important lesson. You see, Jonah still hasn't given up hope that God will rain down fire on Nineveh. And that's why he goes outside the city. And he builds a lean-to with an awning that will provide him some shade from the blistering sun. You see, summer temperatures around the ancient site of Nineveh reach 125, sometimes 130 degrees. And so Jonah creates this little awning, this little hut and this little awning that will provide him some shade. And he sits there still hoping to watch some fireworks. God, I'm waiting. I want you to send fire down from hell and burn up these Assyrians. You know, imagine having a pastor like Jonah. (laughs) Can you imagine? A sourpuss pastor who viewed his congregation as kindling for the flames of hell. Can you imagine? On Sundays, he'd preach for a while. He'd pause and then he'd wait from fire to fall from heaven on the heads of the people. <laughs> and yet, God used a man even like Jonah. Isn't it incredible? One of the greatest revivals of all time was the result of this man's preaching. Again, if Jonah teaches us nothing else, it teaches us that God uses us more in spite of us than because of us. This is also why Jesus told the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 12, verse 41, the men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and indeed a greater than Jonah is here. You see, Nineveh believed the word of a prejudiced preacher who hated them and yet the Pharisees Rejected Jesus, a preacher who loved them and cared for them and wanted to see them saved. And that's why the men of Nineveh will rise up in the day of judgment and point their finger at those Pharisees. Verse 6 tells us what happened to Jonah on the way to the fireworks. And the Lord God prepared a plant. And made it come up over Jonah, that it might be shade for his head to deliver him from his misery. So Jonah was very grateful for the plant. It was probably a palm. They grow eight feet, ten feet tall. One of these palms with the elephant ear leaves and the tender stalks. The palm grew up overnight. It was a miracle. It provided Jonah some supernatural shade. He didn't deserve the blessing, but Jonah was grateful. For the blessing God had given him. And yet as quickly as God blessed Jonah, God removed the blessing for the next day. God prepared a worm that ate the palm. And then an east wind that blew on Jonah. And the plant and the prophet both wilted from the elements. Again, Jonah despairs of life. It seems that every time Jonah doesn't get his way, he curls up in a ball and wants to die. Jonah's a classic spoiled brat. It is interesting to me, though, how in the absence of human relationships, some people do get attached to a plant. Sometimes a dog, maybe a cat, maybe their garden. I know a lady who, like Jonah, worships her plants. 
She lives for her lawn. She's alienated every kid in the neighborhood over them running through her silly yard. She doesn't want someone to mat down her grass. Likewise, instead of caring about people, Jonah becomes attached to his plant. And what's sad is that Jonah cared more about this plant than he did the souls of the people of Nineveh. When Minnesota twin slugger Harmon Killebrew was inducted into Major League Baseball's Hall of Fame, he told the story about his dad. His dad would take him and his brother out into the front yard and they would play pitch. And on occasion, Harmon's mom would complain about them wearing out the grass. And Mr. Killebrew would always answer, Honey, we're raising boys, not grass. You see, it's people that matter. Not things, not plants. Not even our ministries. It's the people we affect that matter. God asked this bigoted prophet in verse 9, Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? And look at Jonah's response. It is right for me to be angry, even to death. But it wasn't even Jonah's plant in the first place. Even the plant was a gift from God. Verse 10, But the Lord said, You have had pity on the plant for which you have not labored, nor made it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right hand and their left and much livestock? Jonah pities a plant, all the while grumbling about why God would want to pity and show mercy to Nineveh. And notice the mention here of the people who can't tell their right hand from the left. In other words, the children, the kids. God is saying, Jonah, think of the innocent kids that you want destroyed. Think of the children that could have grown up as pagans or idolaters, that could have gone to hell if I hadn't delivered and saved and forgiven the city of Nineveh. Think about it, Jonah. Hey, First Peter chapter 1, verse 24 tells us, The grass withers and its flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. The only two earthly items that are going to live for all eternity are the Bible, God's Word, and the souls of men and women, boys and girls. It's God's Word, and it's the people that matter. Guys, make sure you don't get attached to a plant and miss the will of God. Your plant might be a talent, or a career, or a performance or a hobby, or a home, or an ambition, or even a ministry. Never let that plant become more important than the people you've been given to minister to. God loves people. And He wants you to love them too. The point of any ministry is to reach out and to love the people that God has given to you. Sadly, some of us spend more of our money on dog food than ministries to people. More of our time on the plants in our yard than on helping the people around us. God desires each of us to be a people person. 
not a plant person. What actually happened to Jonah remains a mystery. His eventual outcome, we don't know. Archaeologists have found a mound near the ancient site of Nineveh that is called Nebi Yunus, which is the local expression for the prophet Jonah. The area is so revered that the archaeologists have been prevented by the locals to explore the mound. The locals claim that Jonah's tomb is under that mound. If so, it would indicate that Jonah planted himself in Nineveh and spent the rest of his life preaching and teaching these Assyrians. It is nice to think that Jonah overcame his prejudices and developed a love for these people, recognized the grace and mercy that God had shown upon them and had taken it on himself to love them and to represent God with the same kindness. The book of Jonah is full of miracles. We think of the great fish, that the storm at sea was a miracle, the overnight plant, the worm, the wind. But a far greater miracle than all the above is a transformed Jonah. The greatest miracle is when God turns a bigot into a big-hearted person. I hope that's happened to you. Father, thank you for your word tonight. Thank you for these two wonderful books. Lord, help us ponder these things, meditate these truths. Help us, Lord, to apply your word to our heart. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.